Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Picking Up the Broken Pieces. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, April 14th, 2013. In Psalm 30, verse 2, from the lectionary this week, we read, O Lord my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. In a recent article about the movie Moonrise Kingdom, the novelist Michael Chabon explores the film world of director Wes Anderson. In childhood, writes Chabon, we experience the world as unbelievably big and beautiful, but also as irretrievably broken. Sooner or later, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, we all learn the bitter lessons of our broken world. Heartbreak, violence, failure, cowardice, duplicity, cruelty, and grief. Nor is that a complete list of lost innocence. But beauty and brokenness mix and mingle. In the pangs of adolescence, we try to reconcile the two when they provoke the ache of cosmic nostalgia, an intimation of vanished glory, a memory of the world unbroken. This second adolescent experience is as powerful as the first, and the feeling haunts people all their lives. And then in adulthood, people respond to the shattered fragments of life in different ways, says Chabon. Some people sit among the shards and just try to survive. Others break the broken pieces into smaller and smaller fragments. And some people, he writes, passing among the scattered pieces of that great overturned jigsaw puzzle, start to pick up a piece here, a piece there, with a vague yet irresistible notion that perhaps something might be done about putting the thing back together again. This will always be an imperfect process, we can't see the lid of the jigsaw puzzle with its perfect picture of the completed whole. Some pieces will always be missing. The most we can hope to accomplish with our handful of salvage bits is to build a little world of our own. Chabon compares these recreated worlds to a scale model of the broken original. They're partial approximations and imperfect replicas. But even in their imperfections, they can be faithful maps of the beautiful and broken world. And that, he says, is what director Wes Anderson has done in his movies. It's also what the Apostle Peter had to do in this week's Gospel. He had to pick up the pieces of his broken life. 
Peter was eating breakfast on the shores of the Sea of Galilee with the resurrected Jesus. Dirty, wet, and tired, from fishing all night and catching nothing, he huddled around a fire of burning coals. As he extended the palms of his hands to warm himself before the crackling fire, Jesus asked Peter not once, but three times, Peter, do you really love me? And three times Peter responded, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The Gospel of John says that Peter was hurt by Jesus' query. The triple question evoked a deeply painful memory of his triple denial. The last time he stood around a campfire just a few days earlier, Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus. But now Jesus reinstates Peter three times with the words, Feed my sheep. And despite his bitter past, he went on to become the movement's leader. Similarly, this week's reading from Acts chapter 9 describes Paul's Damascus Road conversion. Before his conversion, Paul breathed out murderous threats and aggressively sought to imprison believers. After his conversion, the greatest persecutor of the church became its greatest propagator, eventually traveling over 10,000 miles to spread the good news of God's love. But the memories of Paul's past always cast a dark shadow. Even as an old man, Paul remembered his sordid past to the younger Timothy with remarkable candor. He writes, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He considered himself the worst of sinners. But as with Peter's restoration, after his conversion, Paul also transcended his past, however imperfectly. He wrote to the Philippians about forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. But notice the caveats that both Peter and Paul received about the imperfect nature of restoration and conversion. They are foretastes of a more perfect future, only down payments on our continuing debt to mortality. Jesus says to Peter, When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you, and lead you where you do not want to go. Henry Nowen once used this verse as a shorthand for Christian maturity, to go where you'd rather not go. And to Paul, upon his conversion, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, and before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer 
for my name. Elsewhere, he would say that it is through many trials and temptations that we inherit the kingdom of God. And as we know, according to tradition, both men were martyred. No matter how imperfect our replicas and scale models of God's once and future original, we should never lose hope. Should we fall, we should not despair and estrange ourselves from the Lord's love, said St. Peter of Damascus in the 12th century. Let us always be ready to make a new start. If you fall, rise up. If you fall again, rise up again. We get up again, Frederick Beekner wrote, because as Christians we are, quote, people who have been delivered just enough to know that there's more where that came from, and whose experience of that little deliverance that has already happened inside themselves, and whose faith in deliverance still to happen, is what sees them through the night. Picking up the broken pieces, small-scale replicas of God's kingdom. <clears throat> For books this week, I review Eben Alexander. The title of the book, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. New York, Simon & Schuster, 2012, 196 pages. On November 10, 2008, Eben Alexander was admitted to the Lynchburg General Hospital emergency room with excruciating back pain. Within four hours, he slipped into a deep coma that lasted seven days. At the end of those seven days, he opened his eyes and thrashed around in bed. After the doctor removed his ventilator, Alexander took his first unassisted breath in a week, calmed down, and then said, thank you. Looking around the room at his family and doctors, he smiled and said, all is well. Don't worry, all is well. This simple book about his near-death experience rocketed to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Oprah did an hour-long special about it. The publisher has printed a million copies. Before his near-death experience, Alexander was what you might call a friendly skeptic. He wasn't religious and only went to church on Christmas and Easter. He had spent 25 years as a neurosurgeon, including 15 years at Harvard Medical School. He had published over 150 peer-reviewed scientific articles. Faith in empirical science was his only creed. His eventual diagnosis was so rare that he made something of medical history. Somehow he had contracted spontaneous E. coli bacterial meningitis. The doctors never determined how or why. No one could 
no one could find even one other case like his. He writes, Officially, my status was N of 1, a term that refers to medical studies in which a single patient stands for the entire trial. Alexander's prognosis was catastrophic. His type of meningitis was almost always fatal, and so his doctors gave him little chance for recovery. His brain's neocortex had shut down. He describes it as quote-unquote inoperative. It wasn't that his brain was working improperly or poorly, he writes, but that it wasn't working at all. Such was Eben Alexander's medical condition. But his book is mainly about the profound spiritual experience he had when he was completely free of the limitations of my physical brain. Whereas Alexander has no memory of any events during the week of his coma, he retains absolute clarity about what happened outside his brain. He now believes something that's antithetical to the materialist model of all brain science, that consciousness exists entirely independent of the brain. I won't spoil the story, nor address the firestorm of controversy his book has ignited. Suffice it to say that Alexander gives a vividly, vividly detailed description of his near-death experience. We will show you many things, an angelic being told him, but you will be going back. One message in particular was more important than all the rest. Alexander compares his near-death experience to lifting a veil. A veil can function like a filter, and so can the brain. Although the spiritual realm beyond the brain is available to us, he writes, during the brain-based physical portion of our existence, our brain blocks out or veils that larger cosmic background, just as the sun's light blocks the stars from view each morning. This brain filtering is actually good and necessary for life on Earth. Imagine if you always heard every sound at once. But this brain filtering also obscures the more important realm of the spirit, unless we take deliberate steps to see beyond the veil. The title of Alexander's book, Proof of Heaven, is unfortunate. No amount of debate can conclude whether there's a heaven beyond normal consciousness. To me, this doesn't matter, because I already believe that. What's important is not Alexander's medical miracle, but his spiritual message, that despite this veil of tears which is life, and whether you feel it or not, nothing can separate you from the perfect love that exists at the heart of the universe. This is the reality of realities, he writes the incomprehensibly glorious truth of truths that lives and breathes at the core of everything that exists or that ever will 
exist. Ibn Alexander, Proof of Heaven. For film this week, we travel to China. The title of the film is I Wei Wei, Never Sorry, 2012. In October 2011, Art Review Magazine named Ai Weiwei the number one artist in the world in their annual Top 100. This 90-minute documentary gives a good feel for his art, which has been featured at major galleries around the world, and for his aggressive protests against the Chinese government. One of the most interesting aspects of his political protests is how much of it is done on the internet. After his blog was shut down, Ai Weiwei took to Twitter. The film interviews Weiwei at length, and also various critics, curators, international correspondents, his first gallerist in New York where he lived from 1983 to 1993, and family members. In early April of 2011, Ai Weiwei was detained by police and disappeared for 81 days, a grim reminder that even an international artist of his fame is not immune to the caprice and paranoia of the Chinese government. If we don't push things, says Ai Weiwei, nothing will happen. This film is in English and in Chinese. I watched it on Netflix streaming. Ai Weiwei, never sorry. And for this beautiful month of April, we've posted perhaps my all-time single favorite poem by Henry Vaughan, who lived from 1621 to 1695. Henry Vaughan was a Welsh poet and physician. The title of the poem is The Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves and expressed joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear. The Revival by Henry Vaughan. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 14th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.